Hi, this is Usha Tiwari, and welcome to another edition of The Indian Caregiver. Today, I have a special guest who I met on Facebook. Her name is Dr. Brittany Lamb. She's based out of Virginia, and she's an emergency room physician. Fortunately, but unfortunately, I met Brittany when my mom was rapidly deteriorating and um, was in the middle of being transferred to inpatient hospice. I wish I had met um, Dr. Lamb earlier during my journey so she can provide valuable advice to me. She's going to talk about her experiences as an emergency room physician, dealing um, with dementia patients and caregivers, as well as her Facebook page. Um, so without wasting a lot of time, because there's a lot of information, I'm going to pass it to Brittany. Welcome, Brittany. Thank you for um, being on this episode, um, podcast episode. Hi, Usha. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate you giving me the opportunity to try to get in front of more people and help some more caregivers out there. Now, I think, you know, I follow you on Facebook um, and you gave a lot of valuable information and me being a caregiver, um, it, it always comes in handy. And when you're in those types of moments in the emergency room with a loved one, you know, my brother is a physician, but he's not easy to get hold of. You know, there's always, you know, a sense of mental paralysis and stress. So, um, you know, I'm looking forward to the information that you're going to share, especially from the perspective as an emergency room physician. Yeah, absolutely. It's super stressful. And, the, you know, the ER is a busy place and we're, off, we're oftentimes pressed for time, too. So putting you guys, you guys are in a stressful situation and then we're trying to get you to make decisions quickly. Um, yeah, there's a lot of things that can slip through the cracks and people can oftentimes make a lot of decisions based off their emotions, their heightened emotions and stress. And, and that's what I'm really trying to help people with. Start to think about how they're going to make decisions, medical decisions for their loved one kind of in advance, you know. So it's important to start thinking about these things as soon as someone's diagnosed with dementia. Yes. So, Brittany, tell us tell us about yourself. Give us a little background. Yeah. Yeah. So, I'm so... Like you said, I'm an ER physician. I've been out of training now for almost five years, so I've been working in ER full-time. Um, I grew up in Florida, and I trained in Alabama at the University of Alabama at Birmingham. That's a great place to train. Um, I have a very strong passion for seniors. Um, I, I, I just love them. I love that they're time capsules of history. I think that they're often overlooked and not cared for well um, with our healthcare system. And, you know, I have some personal experience with dementia. My grandmother lived with us when I was in, when I was growing up um, in high school and she had vascular dementia. So I know what it's like to live with someone with dementia. Um, but I've noticed recently in the ER that there's a big gap in education um, and how to make, and how to make decisions and to how, how to feel confident that you're making the right decision for your loved one. I think that we're constantly asking you, what do you want to do? What do you want to do? And if you don't have the if you don't have the information ahead of time, it's it's hard to make a plan, you know, at the last minute, and then feel like you respected your loved one's wishes. Um, so I I've decided, you know, recently I decided over the past few months that I really wanted to help educate caregivers in this in this specific way. Um, and so it's just something I'm really passionate about and looking looking to help people with. You know, exactly. I think, you know, that that's important, um, you know, especially 
as an emergency room physician, you see everything and, you know, um, this, this kind of education is, is crucial not only in the medical community, but um, to families as well. So as an emergency room physician, do you see a lot of dementia patients? And, you know, this kind of a two-part question. Second part is that, you know, those individuals who perhaps go to the emergency room and do not have a definite diagnosis, what, what are some of red flags for you to order tests and what kind of tests are ordered um, in order to rule out any other neurological issues? Yeah, it's a really good question. Um, so the first answer is super simple. I see patients with dementia every single shift. Um, I probably see people that we don't even know that have dementia um, because, you know, some people, especially in the earlier stages, are pretty well functioning. Um, I'll tell you that a lot of times dementia is not listed on a person's medical record, and so lots of things can be missed by not knowing that. Um, and that is one thing that I would strongly recommend you make sure that if you ever go to the hospital that it's documented in your loved one's medical record that they have dementia because that will prompt us to get a hold of you as a person that needs to make their medical decisions and be involved. Um, the second part of the question is, I mean, that's a little bit challenging. So as an ER doctor, my job really is to treat acute issues. So something that's new, a change, some reason why you brought your loved one to the ER. Um, when people have, um, when people have other issues going on, like a stroke, um, or an infection, you know, we obviously, we run blood tests, we check, we check the urine. As far as imaging goes with the brain in the emergency department, it can be very challenging to get a very fast MRI, which is a better test to look at the brain in a more detailed way. We get CT scans very, very easily, and CT scans are the go-to test for looking for stroke. We're mainly just looking to make sure there's no bleeding, there's no tumor. That's something else that can cause you know, cognitive change and symptoms that can be uh, similar to dementia. Um, so CT scans are probably the, the quickest thing that we can get access to. And then if somebody has an issue where they have an acute change in their, in their mental status and their ability to function, it's not safe for them to go home, there's something else going on, we oftentimes will admit patients to the hospital and then they can sometimes get MRIs that way. And I'm just speaking from my ER, it's very challenging to get an MRI in my ER and most of the time people have to be admitted for that or they get that done by their primary care doctor. So as an ER doctor, making a diagnosis of dementia, that's, that's a difficult process because it's a diagnosis of exclusion, but it's, um, we're usually treating patients who are having something that's happening right now, a change that's new. Um, and so I don't know if, that, if that's a good answer to your question. Maybe you need, maybe there's some clarifying question you need to ask me there. No, I think, you know, that that does make sense because, you know, from my experience as a caregiver, you know, with my mom, um, actually, ironically, I, I came to find out when she was in the emergency room, what had happened with her was that she had um, blanked out, passed out, and apparently for 14 hours, and um, she had a broken elbow and tore her tricep and didn't know what happened so fortunately that particular emergency room physician like you said ordered the ct scan 
And that's uh -huh. when they found some fluid in the brain and kind of alluding to hydrocephalus. And I, uh -huh. you know, I think then that led, I can't remember because it's been a, you know, a while. I think that's uh, eventually led when they admitted her, um, they did the MRI, like you said, and then they said that, you know, she most likely has vascular dementia. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, usually it's people wind up for some other reason in the ER mm -hmm. and then, yeah, we can find things, um, based on imaging that comes from them being there or being in the hospital or going home and recommending that those tests. Um, yeah. Yeah, you just never know. Like with, like I said, in my mom, it was, um, you know, fortunately, it was the emergency room that took her there. Because if not, we thought it was, you know, mental health illness um, until they did the CT scan. So, yeah. um, so that's, you know, that's, you know, definitely that's was really on the radar. Important. Yeah, that's really important too for people to know. You know, you can have depression and dementia, but you can, but. Depression and dementia symptoms, especially in, in older folks, the symptoms do overlap. And so it's very important to consider um, depression um, before you, you know, before you diagnose someone with dementia. Um, but obviously you can, you can develop dementia after having a depression and you can also become depressed because of a diagnosis of dementia. So, so it can make it challenging. It's like a double-edged sword. Um, you know, one thing that I did notice is that you, when I first took my mom, and this is maybe seven, eight years ago, when she was in the emergency room, it was really interesting for me to see um, from a caregiver's perspective and, you know, with my father being a physician, how things had changed in the sense um handling with dementia patients, like treating them, you know, early on, like seven years ago, um, there were some nurses who would laugh at her because, you know, they would ask my mom a question and she would, you know, her response would be, you know, a bit of agitation and stuff, you know, and, um, but I noticed, you know, lately the last two, three years, the doctors were a bit more spot on with the diagnosis and um, treating the situation a, a, a bit differently. So it was kind of nice and refreshing to see how dementia training with the, in the medical community has um, evolved and continues to evolve over the years. Do you, do you guys have like a lot of training um, that is mandatory dealing with dementia patients? Um, not real, not really. To be quite honest with you, um, I think that it's it's just hands on hands on experience. You know, some people are, have been caregivers, and then you know we know that patients with dementia have communication issues, and they have just difficulties with you know making making their own decisions and having rational you know thought and conversation. Um, and so um, I think that having it in the chart is super important and helpful to us because if you just walk into someone's room and, and you have, sometimes we haven't even looked at the chart, you know, if we're really, really busy and I'm just running around from room to room, I don't sometimes look in the medical record before I go into a room. But I do think that with electronic medical records, um, having that in there is super helpful because that helps you know, okay, well, I need, to, I need to be a little bit more careful in how I ask questions and listen more to their response and gather history from the other people in their lives. Be more patient with them, be calmer, you know, make sure I speak clearly and don't ask them multiple questions in a row. Um, I, so, I mean, I'm glad that you've had that experience with seeming like people are, are more in tune. I don't know from a nursing perspective if they, if they have mandatory training. I think that that would be all hospital specific. 
Um, but from a physician standpoint, um, you know, a lot of physicians stay up to date by listening to podcasts and, um, and, and, you know, doing continuous medical education, um, continuing medical education. And there's a very popular ER podcast that a lot of ER folks listen to. And it, and we do talk about, they do talk about geriatrics and dementia and stuff in there. So I think as the people are aging and our population is getting older, you know, I, this is obviously becoming more and more common. So, you know, us being sensitive to, to the patients and to the caregivers is really important. Yeah, you also said something that kind of, you know, triggered is that, you know, when you go talk to the dementia patients, you know, in the room, um, it must be challenging, especially if they don't have a caregiver there or a caregiver who's instrumental in their care. It's like sometimes fishing for answers. Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. It makes it really tough. You know, if someone comes in and they're alone and you know, I can tell this person has cognitive issues, you know, what the cause of that is, what type of dementia they have, you know, may not be known. Um, I, you know, I'm oftentimes calling their facility. What happened today? Why did you send them here? You know, what is it that you need me to do? Um, you know, and then calling families, you know, like what is the overall goal of care here? What, you know, what kind of quality of life does this person have? Because, you know, when people come into the ER, they're usually there because something has happened. And I, that doesn't, what, how they look right there in that moment does not define how they are every single day. Something has changed. And so it's diff- you can't make decisions just by talking to them. I mean, I can look them over. I examine them. I'm a little bit more careful when I hear that they've fallen to, like, touch their whole body to see if I can elicit some sort of pain, like completely undressing them is very important, rolling them over and looking at their back. Um, it's, it's very challenging. Um, it's very, very challenging to take good care of patients with dementia, especially since, you know, they oftentimes require repetitive um, redirection and, and, and you, you know, and we don't often have the resources in the ER to be able to do that, which is why people get sedated a lot of the time. Um, and sometimes that's chemically with medications and sometimes people are also put in restraints sometimes. Um, so it, the caregivers and the and the team of people that are with the patient every single day, their the knowledge from them is what's most important oftentimes, and it can be challenging to get. Yeah, because I, I remember I would drop what I would do if my mom, you know, had to go to the emergency room and make sure, you know, to be there because communication is clear. That way, you know, there is a clear medical plan. And I know a lot of times, you know, it was difficult for me to be there and, um, you know, it's challenging. But I think that, um, you know, once once the physician and the team has an idea, especially once they leave the emergency room and have um, they're under admission, then it it's it becomes a little easier um, to communicate. Uh-huh. One one question I wanted to ask you is that you know in my advocacy journey, the last few years I'm I'm coming in across individuals who are being diagnosed with early onset. As a physician, what are the signs individuals should look for um, for to kind of set up an set up an alarm to talk to their primary? Um, for to potentially be tested for early onset, and what what kind of tests are there they should ask for? Yeah, yeah. So, and again, you know, I'm an ER doctor, yes. so this is this is more of a primary care thing. But I will say that the big thing is whether or not your memory, your cognitive issues are 
impacting your daily functioning. That's that's a big thing. So, you know, if you're if you're trailing off in conversations and not able to redirect yourself, if you're not able to remember people's names or how you know someone that you know that you should know, um, if you're getting, you know, confused on a path that you normally take, whether that's walking or driving, um, in order to diagnose dementia, you know, there has to be an inability to function or, or an effect on functioning on a day-to-day level. And then also, you know, depression has to be excluded. Um, so that's another big thing. But issues with, you know, um, having rational any executive functioning, which means that, you know, you're able to have judgment in a situation, maybe even stop yourself from saying something. So sometimes people, you know, lose their filter even more than they already had before. Um, that can be a sign of early onset dementia. Um, so there's there's lots of different, there's lots of different symptoms. But basically, if you feel like you're having difficulty with functioning and you think something is going on in your brain that's triggering that, you should absolutely go see a doctor and be screened. So there are a battery of tests that they can do for screening tests, like the mini mental status exam. There's another test called the MOCA, M-O-C-A. I can't remember. I think the last two letters are like cognitive assessment. Um, but if you have if you have symptoms of early onset, there's going to need to be more of a medical workup. So we need to make sure there's not something else that's causing this. You know, dementia is, you know, there's all kinds of diseases that cause dementia, Um, but you, you know, you, early people that are young definitely need neuroimaging, so a CT scan, an MRI is better, um, and you can do that as an outpatient. Um, And they may even need to be referred from, like, a primary care doctor to somebody who can do a more detailed um, neuropsychological assessment on them. Um, So the earlier symptoms come on, the more extensive the workup is because that's not, it's not as common. Okay. That's, yeah, that's good to know because like, it's, like I said, it seems like that, um, it's a, it's a, it's an, um, area that's, you know, explosive and, you know, it's also, um, you know, eventually detrimental to the healthcare system as far as resource and costs, you know, are concerned as well. And it does mm-hmm. take a toll, um, not only on the vigil, but the families as well. So, um, yeah, Absolutely. That's one thing. Another, you know, area I wanted to talk about, we have about 10 minutes, is that, you know, like I said, I I mentioned, it goes by so quickly because there's so much information, you know, out there and it's, um, you know, it's, it's, you know, once you start talking, it's, it's nonstop. Um, One thing leads to another. Um, But I wanted to make sure that we have some time to talk about, you know, you as a physician and, um, you know, you, you are taking time out of your busy schedule um, to have a Facebook group and you have Facebook lives where you share information. I, I am part of that group and I see how you know, you will really want to help individuals. You're very compassionate about it. Um, and you want to make a difference. You want to empower individuals with knowledge. So tell, tell us about that group and what your goal is. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so yeah, I'm doing weekly videos to try to help give information to caregivers. Um, you know, I started the group because I, I really ultimately want to create a course that caregivers can go through. Um, with personalized feedback from me, um, individualized support from me, um, and trying to create an actual plan in writing for how they are going to make medical decisions on their loved one's behalf. 
Um, and it is, it's challenging and you have to consider their other medical issues when you do something like this. Um, defining their quality of life is a big piece of that and understanding that the disease progresses over time and that their quality of life is going to change and, you know, most everyone's quality of life is going to get worse, you know, depending on what that, what that means to them. And so having, you know, an idea of all the medical issues that can come up with dementia, but then also just as people age and kind of what treatments are available. So what can we do in the hospital? What can we do at home? what's the least aggressive to most aggressive treatment for pretty much every kind of medical issue that can come up so that, you know, you can be empowered to make your, make the decision um, for your loved one when it happens based on where they're, where they're at in their journey. That's ultimately what I really want to help people with. And the Facebook group is just a way to connect with me, ask me questions um, about planning. Um, and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm there to be a, a resource and, and support for people. No, definitely. Like I said, I wish I would have um, known you a, a bit earlier um, in my journey. You know, I know before my mom passed away, she passed away December 5th. Back in September, she was in the hospital. She just, you know, didn't understand anything cognitively. She was fighting an infection, especially UTIs. That's a, that's a menace and biggest nightmare for any caregiver or patient to deal with. Yeah. It just throws everything off your, you know, your blood work, your mental state of mind. Um, so it was very challenging, but what, what is, you know, um, one thing, you know, I'll be honest with you. I was, as a caregiver, I was so focused on caring for her and just surviving. You know, I know people say, oh, we'll take it day by day. And for me, it was like, no, hour to hour, minute to minute, you know, survival. Yeah. I don't believe in, you know, living day by day um, because, you know, you're constantly having to be alert if something happens, if they fall, if you notice something differently in their breathing patterns or if they're not eating, how long that's going to happen for um, so I really was kind of, I wasn't focused to be honest with you on, and to a certain extent scared for making a plan for end of life, but, you know, for caregivers out there, um, what happened with my mom, you know, at the end, when I realized that mobility was a challenge, um, and I did not have any support from outside. I had a caregiver who was coming maybe 10 hours a week, which I appreciate the help. It was something, but it wasn't enough. And I was, you know, yeah. starting to get a little panicky with the, her not eating. She had, um, dysphagia and she wasn't able to eat solid food. So then, you know, they were trying to tell me that she needs to be on a puree diet. So, you know, all these things were happening towards the end of life. But, you know, what should caregivers and families, what kinds of questions should they ask, you know, their physicians when they're having to make these kinds of tough decisions, especially during an emotional state? Yeah, um, so I think the big thing is asking, you know, what are all the treatment options? You know, I think that when something comes up, you can say, okay, um, we need to we need to know what all the options are, and um, from least aggressive to most aggressive. And then also, is there any way we can do this at home? Is there any way we can do this at our facility? Um, what are the what are the complications or the risks of the treatment? Um, and you know, what are the risks of being hospitalized? Um, what what can we expect going forward? You know, after after this medical issue happens, like what what can we expect for their quality of life? Like how are they going to be? Um, I think another big thing is you know if we do something to them, if we do a procedure or we give them antibiotics for infection, 
what what are we expecting their overall quality of life to be like afterward? Um, and so it, it's hard it's hard to answer, you know, because every situation is different. But I mm-hmm. think like making sure you understand all the treatment options and making sure you understand what potential complications could come from the treatment, um, and you know, from not treating or from treating, you know. Um, but I, I would say, you know, it's really, this is why it's really important to talk about these things ahead of time because <clears throat> the overall goals of care is the most important thing we should always be falling back on. Um, what are, what are someone's, what are someone's goals of care? And a lot of times you can't have that conversation with your loved one when you get involved and you start caring for them because they've already lost the ability to have that conversation with you. Um, and so you really have to think about if that person had a healthy brain and they were able, they were sitting in the room with you, having a conversation with the team, looking at themselves, what would, what would they say? What would they say? What would they want to do? Um, and, and I think trying to always make decisions from what the person, the patient, your loved one would want and would be okay with. Um, I think as long as you do that, I think that you're going to be fine. I, but I think that a lot of times people make emotional decisions I hear people say things like I I don't want to I don't want to lose them I'm not ready to let them go and um and that's you know that's normal that's perfectly normal and healthy to say but I think that I think what maybe will help people in that situation is just saying what would what would they say if they had a healthy brain and they were sitting right there with you yeah that's true how about you know another um thing, and I know this is not your area of expertise, is that physician, you know, the, um, is palliative care versus hospice. That's another tough issue as well to understand because I didn't understand what palliative care was. And, you know, with hospice, you know, I, I am very grateful to hospice, you know, towards the end. I know when my mom passed away, some people had said, oh, hospice did it to her, you know, by denying. And I, I understand the process, you know, why things had to happen. It was a crash course in that, but that's another dynamic area that um, it would be good for people to be educated early on, just palliative care versus hospice care. Yeah, so palliative care is great. Anytime somebody has a chronic disease that we expect that we cannot cure, um, so dementia would be one of them. Also, COPD, congestive heart failure, in a lot of instances cannot be cured, um, will not improve, um, and will get worse over time. All these types of diseases, you qualify for palliative care. So you can get palliative care on board immediately. In palliative care, you can pursue treatments. You can be hospitalized. If you're a cancer patient, you can have chemotherapy. The idea of palliative care is to focus the care on what the person needs. What are their goals? What do they actually need in order to function and have the best quality of life possible? So it's a connection to all kinds of resources. It's fantastic, and it's not used enough. Palliative care is not used enough because I think people think that it's end of life, which, you know, it's when you're diagnosed with something that we can't fix and you have a complex issue and you need more help. And so that's palliative care. Um, Hospice is designed for people who have reached end of life. We know that they're either either actively dying or they're expected to die within the next, you know, six months usually is the, is the, um, it's kind of the window. But I will tell you that a lot of times when people go on hospice care because they're, focus on quality of life and comfort, they oftentimes will get self-do better. And sometimes people will live on hospice for a year, two years. Sometimes people even come off of hospice. 
So, you know, hospice does not kill people. Um, you know, they do not end people's lives. They help the family and the patient with the overall goal of being comfortable and kept comfortable until the end of their life. And so when you're on hospice there, you usually do not pursue treatment of, you know, uh, of anything that can be managed at home. And infection is often sometimes that's not treated when someone's on hospice because that is prolonging life. Yeah, no, I, I, I had a very good experience with hospice. It was basically learn as I go. The nurses were very compassionate and educational. They told me, you know, everything that was happening and why it was happening. And then when she was transferred from home to, you know, the hospital, um, very communicative and very compassionate. And it's one of the toughest jobs to have. I, I don't know how they how they handle it. Um, it's it's I know I was at the hospice unit for one week and it was a very emotional and I the words can't describe what it was like so yeah it is yeah. a very, a very tough... special group of people yes sure. so we just have under two minutes left Brittany I just wanted okay. you to share with you your any contact information or any social media handles that way if individuals want to reach out to you they can yeah so I mean I think the easiest way to find me is to just search for me on Facebook so it's Brittany it's B-R-I-T-T-A-N-Y and then lamb like a sheep um, and I have a Facebook page, which is Brittany Lamb MD. I have my own profile, which is totally public. And then my Facebook group right now is called End of Life Planning for Your Loved One with Dementia. I probably will be changing it to Medical Decision Making for Your Loved One with Dementia, but you can find me there. You can get the links on my profile page. I'm also on LinkedIn. If you just look up Brittany Lamb MD, you can find me on LinkedIn as well. Well, thank you very much, Brittany, for taking time out of your busy schedule to kind of break down some medical terms from a perspective from an emergency room physician. I think this is very beneficial to listeners and to, you know, caregivers and patients. And, you know, I look forward to having you again. There's a, this is like a mammoth subject. Um, yeah, and it's yeah. very, you know, dealing with, um, healthcare and physicians, you know, I know this is a much needed area that needs to be talked about and addressed to put especially caregivers at ease during um, stressful situations. So thank you to everyone who um, who was listening this episode. Um, really appreciate your support and your feedback. And thank you again for listening to the Indian Caregiver. And thank you, Brittany. I look forward to having you again. Sounds good.